Do you need prayers? They're right in there if you need one. I can lead it. <laughs> I didn't put him back in the um the three rings last night. That's why it did that. <laughs> Sashi Puki Chipshin Etok Chum Rirad Linshin Yende Gimpadi Sange Shingdu Mikte Uwargi Jokun Amdach Shingla Chifar Shuk Yidan Guru Radna Mandakam Niryatayami Sange chudang suki chuknam la Jang chu bardu dakni kyapsuchi Daki chenyen gipe sunam ki Jola penchir sange drupar shuk Sange chudang suki chuknam la Jang chu bardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Chenyen Gipe Sunam Ki Jola Penchir Sange Juparshuk Sange Chirang Suki Chuknamla Changchu Bardu Dakni Kyapsuchi Daki Chenyen Gipe Sunam Ki Jola Penchir Sange Juparshun. Okay, then we'll start with a meditation. Really just relaxing, letting yourself arrive in the room. Get the sense that you're completely releasing the busyness of the day. Focus to the forehead and letting the forehead smooth, feeling a smile across the forehead. from the inside out as though the corners
shoulders are turning up in a smile. completely unhinges. Relaxing the tongue from the inside out all the way down to the root of the tongue. Feeling the throat fill the neck. Feeling it from the inside out. Feeling the shoulders from the inside out. They're moving from ice to water, water to gas. Feeling the length and volume of the arms. Relaxing the hands. Seeing what happens if you relax them again. belly soften from the inside out, relaxing on the exhale and the inhale. Feeling the pelvic floor from the inside out. and volume of both legs, feeling from the inside out. Feeling any tingling or pressure, heat or cold in the feet. whole body now, widening the lens, feeling all the sensations in the whole body.
happens if you identify with the awareness, still open awareness, as opposed to thoughts or feelings or the body. Noticing if there's tension again anywhere, releasing it. And just relaxing into the full present moment. You don't have to do anything or change anything that comes up. Just noticing what it feels like to simply be in the present moment. Feeling the sensations in your body. Maybe hearing the sounds around you. Time a thought comes up, contraction comes with it. And of course thoughts come up, it's okay. And you notice just relaxing again into spacious openness. again into that spacious awareness. If you notice the mind has gone off with a thought. by making a dedication of your own choice.
need to move when you're ready. Opening the eyes. We're on class eight of Escaping Uncertainty, a study of Buddhist ethics. And today is Wednesday, October 31st. And this class is like dessert. So we're going to do a thing called Lam Rim. Do you know what this is? Okay, um, and the idea is is at a certain point we could become we could learn to translate Tibetan, we could be teaching Buddhism, and even at those points, it's really good every once in a while to go back and ground ourselves in Lamrim, which we'll go over the meaning of that in just a second. It keeps our motivation in the right place, and it gives us an overview of the whole path. So it's like an anchor or a, um, something that can keep us grounded. So long rim means steps up the path. Oh, I meant to put a picture of this. Um, and it's, it's really cool because the Buddha's teachings are like an automobile engine. You look inside, and they all mostly look the same, especially if you don't know much about cars, like me. And you get in, you put the key in the ignition, and sometimes it works. Once in a while, it doesn't. Hopefully just once in a while. And when it doesn't, it means something big is missing, like the battery's not working. Some of the filters could be not working and it would be okay but usually if it doesn't run something big is missing and then there's other cars and you can open it up and everything looks normal but something big is missing and you don't know what it is and it won't run at all so some cars you open it up and you can see what the problem is others you have no idea in these last three classes we're going to cover the Lamrim which were the steps taught by Lord Buddha in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, and then later revived by Master Tisha. So we're going to kind of go through the whole lineage tonight, which is really cool. And the Lamrim study grounds us in the essence of all Buddhist teachings. It's really helpful because it sh we can look at what classes we're in and we can tell exactly where it fits along the path once we know the Lamrim well enough, like the overview of all the Buddhist teachings. So it's a presentation of all the steps that we need to get to the goal, which is Buddhahood, and it's the essential steps like the essential parts to a car engine. 
And it's a little confusing because each separate step is also called a lamrim. So you'll hear lamrim referring to the whole step thing, the whole steps on the path, and then each one can also be called lamrim. So you might hear you might hear both. If we go through the whole monastic course, if we were to do that, we would get perfection of wisdom for 12 years. We would study that. Then we would study Madhyamika for two years, Abhidharma for two years, eight years of Pramana or logic, eight years. Then the last three to four years, we begin to see the whole structure of Buddhism. And up until that point, we think it's, it kind of seems like this whole mass of knowledge that doesn't necessarily tie together. But somewhere in the monastery around the 15th year, we would finally get it and how it's all this big network of light. Every different subject is like a point of light in the sphere, but it takes a while to see how Buddhist logic relates directly to emptiness. And that, that's a Lamrim realization. We could go to the monastery or we can study Lamrim, which is what we're doing. So we can get there both ways. And Lamrim was revived by Lord Atisha, and it was taught by Lord Buddha in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. We're going to go over a very brief Lamrim. And when we're going over, Say Lam Rim Dudun. Lam Rim Dudun. So Lam is path, Rim is steps, and Dudun is brief. This is a short book on the steps of the path by Jason Hoppe. And his dates are 1357 to 1419. He wrote several versions of the Lam Rim including his masterpiece presentation, The Lamrim Chenmo. Have you seen that book? No. I wonder if we have it here. Yeah, it's, it's pretty extensive. It, it's an amazing, it's an amazing book. Have you read the whole thing? Not the whole thing. I've gone through and read different parts of it. I don't think I've read it cover to cover. It's not that long. You could totally read the whole thing. Um, throughout his life, Jason Kappa wrote 10,000 pages of commentary. 10,000. For him, it was just like a knife cutting through butter. That's the analogy that Geshe Michael uses in this class. He spent most of his time meditating and then a lot of time communing with his lamas like Manjushri. Um, but in his free time, he composed all of these texts. His great Lamrim, the Lamrim Chenmo, is the greatest scripture written in the Tibetan language. And from what Geshe Michael says, I don't know if this is still true, because this course was in the, the 90s, the late 90s, um, or maybe it was mid-90s. But he said at that point, nobody had translated the, the Lamrim Chenmo very well yet. So it had been translated, but not very well. Then only once did Jason Kappa write a Lamrim based on his own personal experience, 
So we won't find quotations. He's not going to be quoting anyone else. And that's the Lamrim Dudin, which is what we're going over, just in brief. This one is really brief, and it's a very personal version of the Lamrim. I don't think I have this up here. But it's also called Jnyamgyur, which means J is Lord, Nyam is personal experience, and Gyur is song. So it's song of my spiritual life, which is really sweet. I'm pretty sure after. Okay. I think, yeah, he is. He's after. I have the. I have the dates here. I see where Lord Tisha is. Because he is. He wrote the original. He's nine eighty two to ten fifty two. But Lord Buddha is, is he 200? 500 BC. What were, so what were you asking? was his teacher? Was, um. Lord Tisha was. Um, Jason Kappa? Mm -mm. But he revived the Lamrim Chenmo, like he brought it back into the mainstream of Buddhism or something like that. It was originally taught by the Buddha. Okay. Yeah. And we'll go, we're going to go over the lineage right now, actually. At the beginning of the Lamrim, all of the authors always try to show how it's coming directly from the Buddha. Um, and in Buddhism, what we're learning is actual experiences and blessings of a human being teaching a human being. It's not just the books that we're studying that were handed down, it's the actual blessing of the knowledge from each teacher. So it's a little, a little different. It has a, a different feel to it when we see it like that. And the continuation of the Buddhist lineage is extremely important as the means of passing down the authentic essence of the teachings from heart to heart, mind to mind, through the ages. So what we have to do is be a receptacle, and the Lama has to pour water into us, and then we keep that water purely, and then we pour it into the next person that we teach. However it is that we do that. It doesn't have to be formal teaching. And so the first of the lineage is a Shakya Tupa. Shakya Tupa. Shakya Tupa. And this is Shakyamuni Buddha, capable one of the Shakya clan, Gautama Buddha, and he was alive 500 BC. Shakya 
A lot of people confuse with Sakya, which is a location in Tibet. It's, it's also one of the four great t- traditions in Tibetan Buddhism. But Shakya is different. It refers to a race of people that lived in Tibet at the time that the Buddha was alive. And during this time, which is really sad, the Shakyas were totally destroyed. They were completely slaughtered. A lot of them came to the Buddha to protect them, and he couldn't, which is why what we were talking about last night with refuge, why going for refuge isn't going to a physical being, it's going to refuge in the teachings of karma and emptiness, ultimately. Because the physical being, obviously, if even Lord Buddha can't help, they can't protect us ultimately in that same way. The Buddha's holy body was created by 10 million different virtues. And it's not, it's not external forces that are creating the Buddha's body and his world. Where, so where is it that the Buddha's body would come from? Yeah, it's a reflection of our spiritual life, or his spiritual life. Our body now is a footprint of our mental state in a past life. Which is, it's, that language is really helpful. It, it gives it a different sense. Our body is a footprint of our past mental life. And it's easy for us to understand not it's easy. If it's easy for us to understand Dharma and we react to it well, then we have extraordinary virtuous karma or extraordinary virtuous seeds from the past. If we react to it and we're so overcome with emotion, we cry every time we hear it, we can't sleep and we're freaking out over it, he says that's even more virtuous. Freaking out over the... Like how amazing the teachings are. if there's things about my body that I don't like everything that I don't like it's all a production of something in my past life something that was done in a past life and ripened in me seeing something I don't like in my body if I'm surrounded by some people I like others I don't or my boss isn't so great In a past life, we did something not so great, and that's why we're in the position that we are now. So it's really clear and cut and dry in that way. There's no confusion that someone else did something to us or something like that, so it kind of simplifies the world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The kind of body that we have now does not reflect the ultimate potential that all of us has. This body actually speaks of the ultimate failure of a previous person to practice the tantric teaching successfully. Because if if the previous incarnation of me had practiced the tantric teaching successfully, they would have gotten out of suffering and I would be a Buddha. Or, you know, not I, Mm -hmm. but I never would have been born in this life in the human form. I would have been completely out of the cycle of suffering. 
and it doesn't look like it. The body doesn't look like it does now as when we're going to reach enlightenment. This body will start to reflect the inner state of the mind. And we have the capacity to create huge virtues mentally, especially in the secret teachings. We can change the way the body looks in this life, which is pretty amazing. Because in a big way, we don't really believe that that's possible. Like intellectually, we try to and we want to, but we haven't, I know I haven't seen it yet. So in some way, I, I don't know for sure. Like, I think pretty much yes, but there's some lack of certainty until you see it yourself, really. What, what kinds of changes would they talk about? He didn't give any examples, but if we think about emptiness and karma, I, anything could change. I don't know if there's no, I don't think there's any limitations to how quickly it would be because in an instant, things could change if we had the right seeds come up. It's just like how it's the same but on the opposite end of the spectrum, how we like get in a car accident and die in an instant. Mm -hmm. That's This is my understanding. And would people be like, what happened to her? Did she get sick or something? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what would happen. Because if those, I guess it depends what changes, but I mean, there are things that change in our body. It's just more gradual and over time. And I don't know if we had the karmic seeds for huge things to change. Maybe maybe we'd have karmic seeds like different ones ripening with other people too. Maybe they wouldn't notice or they'd be like, wow, you look amazing. Have you been getting more sleep or something? Yeah. But I think a lot of times too, we think people notice more about us than they really do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> like maybe they wouldn't even notice. So... The Buddha teaches things that will fulfill the hopes of limitless numbers of beings and ourselves as well. We're part of all beings. And I think the idea of what he's saying is that as we're going along the path, especially the tantric path, things will start happening a lot faster because it's meant to happen in one life. The fastest amount of time from what I know is three years, three months, three days, so the three-year retreat. Um, but you could, we could be well on our way out after that time. I think the idea is that we could reach full enlightenment in that time. And then our body would be completely different. So along the way, there's got to be changes that are happening just like there would be with our mind. It just makes sense to me. I don't, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I see that. Yeah. But does it have to be that formal, tantric, you know, where you actually are, you know, in the, the one that, I guess that all means to 
Yeah. It has to be that one. I think there's lots of different paths and lots of different ways to get there. And from what I've heard, that's not the only way in Buddhism. All the teachings say it's the fastest way. But I've also heard over and over that if we practice the open teachings perfectly, then Tantra will just happen anyways. It'll just open up on its own. I don't think there's one like set, set route. But from what I know, Tantra supercharges everything. And, I mean, according to the teachings, it's the fastest way to which is why we would want to do it because we would have bodhicitta or trying to have it so we'd be looking around and seeing all these people suffering so much and we couldn't stand it and so we would have to do we, it wouldn't be for ourselves it would be like I can't stand all these people suffering so much I have to get out as soon as possible because for ourselves we can wait like another million years or whatever <laughs> million years, <Yeah>. million lifetimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> so let, in the same vein of what we're talking about the, so once we reach enlightenment and we are a Buddha we know the words to help every being reach nirvana and paradise and we have the power to emanate in order to teach them the Buddha can see all the thoughts you've ever had, will have, or do have at one time, all at once. The Buddha's vision can encompass emptiness and all these objects at the same time that we see in um, I'm trying to think of the word in relative reality. That's not what I was thinking of, but um, deceptive reality. So you can see ultimate and deceptive at the same time. A Buddha is the only being that can do that. So even after we see emptiness directly and we've seen that ultimate reality for ourselves in meditation, once we come out of it, we're not going to see it directly anymore. We have it intellectually and we know it's true, but we won't see it. And like both of them, We'll just see deceptive reality until we reach Buddhahood, and then we'll see both at the same time. It's only a Buddha that can do that. And what's fueling the Buddha's mind is compassion. It's the motivation to help all other beings. And a Buddha can look into our mind to see what we need in that very moment to get us into a better body and mind, to get us out of the cycle of suffering. And it's really amazing because not all Buddhas teach the secret teachings, but Buddha Shakyamuni did. There's actually very few who teach the secret teachings. And we had one come to our world, and we still have the secret teachings, which is a really amazing thing. And that means in this life that we can reach these goals. And a lot of these texts, like this one we're going over, 
are like Jason Kappa writing a love letter to Shakyamuni Buddha because of the beautiful world and teachings and everything that he shared and taught. The way the Buddha teaches has 60 different qualities. This part's really cool. No matter what language the Buddha speaks, each being hears their own language. The Buddhas actually speak Sanskrit, which I didn't really know that. I didn't, or I didn't remember that until this class. But each being hears it as their own language. The other realms can't really study Dharma. Like in the hell realms, they can't think straight because there's too much pain. The animal realm, the mind is too dull. They can't understand. And it's really cool. The Buddhas or Buddha can come and teach to us or guide us in any way that we need. So it's not impossible for the Buddha to be the moon in a clear night sky or gorgeous sunrise or a bright flower opening. That Those things can be a Buddha as well. Like the amazing sunrise, like the pink sky that you see in the morning, that can be a Buddha too. Because they can emanate in many different ways. However, it's going to be helpful to people. And so maybe that's what's going to be most helpful to us in that moment. And so that's what they do. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So they can, I mean, someone can just be in your life stream, and then all of a sudden it switches to the Buddha, because at that point you need it, or is it that the Buddha even is there? Just that that's that person. You mean when we, like when a Buddha comes mm-hmm. to us, it's that some seed ripens that, that creates the opportunity and we have to see them come to us in that way. Even if it's your friend, you know. Uh-huh. And I remember, which was really helpful, there's usually a lot of different levels of these teachings and different ways of explaining it. And I remember um, Venerable Tenzin talking about this one way that the Buddhas come and teach. Oh, how did she say it? Oh, that's so funny. I'm, I'm kind of forgetting, but I think this is what she said. Mm-hmm. I think she said that They'll come as, like your friend will say something amazing to you and help you. And it's almost like they're, um, is it called a conduit? Or like somehow the Buddha is talking through them. Mm-hmm. And they might not even know why they're saying this to yeah. you. Or maybe, they would ne- maybe they've never said anything like that to you in their whole life. Mm-hmm. But it's like the Buddhas are able to teach through them when you have the karmic seeds ripen to be able to hear it. And so that's what Venerable Tenzin was saying a lot of, like, I think she was saying it helped her understand how, you know, like teachers 
can teach and like say exactly what you need to hear or something like that. Because mm-hmm. there's different ways that the Buddhas can come too. So it could, it could be in that way. It could be that your friend is a fully enlightened angel the whole time and just took this birth in order to say like one thing to you 20 years after you meet or something. Because it, it really could be that too. So there's all these different different ways that the Buddhas can come and different levels of seeing it. I do have that too. Like, oh my gosh. Like, stepmom. Sometimes I'll be like, oh God, is she... <laughs> I think... <laughs> I'm like, I, I've been like struggling with her... the relationship with her accepting her from back childhood um Mm. and then sometimes I'll be like oh my gosh she's (laughs) she's being nice or she's (laughs) doing this thing that's changing that's making me feel guilty like you think she's a Buddha maybe (laughs) or that She could be. I'm like, damn it, why? Why are you in my life and I'm I'm cursing her? (laughs) Why? Because it's like difficult or... I was just struggling with the relationship with my dad and then Mm. her coming in the picture all those years ago and mainly my dad, the way he was like my feelings didn't matter she's here I'm happy just accept it mm. and I'm like well you just left me in the dust and <laughs> yeah that's rough Cause, and then so I've just been struggling with that resentment always and I'm like I don't even like you like why are you in my life and He's the one that chose you, so stay out of my life. Like, you go to, you're with him. That's what makes you happy. Like, just be whatever. (laughs) Yeah. It's awful. I see it, and I'm like, how could I be this way? Or, like, working with that. That's one of my main things I'm working with right now. Yeah, it sounds hard because it sounds like maybe the way your dad went about it at first wasn't super helpful. How long has it been? It was when I was like 12 or 13 and now. Mm -hmm. 24 years? Yeah. Well, maybe there's some way that will open up that you can work with it differently where it'll be okay, too. Because <coughs> that happens as things shift. Has it gotten easier over the years? Slightly. I get tense when I see them or talk to them. Sometimes I'll just mm-hmm. want to talk to my dad, but then she'll answer. And I'll be like, 
so just go on and on and then I won't even end up talking to my dad and I'm like And there was one time I was really mad when I called and she was talking and I was like, can I just talk to my dad? And I was like kind of rude about it. <laughs> and, um, and then she just mentions it later another time. She's like, yeah, and then you brushed me off the phone that time. And I'm like, <laughs> whatever. But then there's other times where she really helped me, where my dad was so, like, not understanding. Yeah. And she kind of helped. And then I'm like, okay, why can't I? Why just can't I just? I wonder if, um, because I know it can change the relationship a lot when you need someone's help you know, and they help you. I wonder if, like, when you have something difficult come up, if you just reach out to her and see what would happen then. Like, you could just do an experiment and, like, do it, like, once. Or maybe, you know, or maybe, like, a few times. Maybe you would normally reach out to your dad or to someone else or... You know, like something where you think she could actually be helpful even though you, you might not really want to. I wonder if that would change something. Like if it would shift something for you. And then also she does like talk over me sometimes where she won't even let me finish a sentence. Cause, and then she'll shoot in with her ideas and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even finish. Like when I was making amends, she interrupted me constantly instead of me just reading what I had. She kept like putting in her piece and sometimes it's rude, you know, the things that she says. So me saying something too has felt important where I feel like, you know, I feel hurt when you said, or I felt hurt when you said that. Oh, that's good. Or, that's good to be communicating that you haven't yeah <laughs> oh yeah I think that'd be really good to at least like you don't have to do it right then necessarily or like in front of your dad or anything I think you could even just like call her later or you know like mm -hmm. or talk to her later when no one else is around or something so it's not like a big deal but I think it's really good to I think that could be a huge thing and it's just helpful for us to practice, you know, like MVC style, just saying like, when you said this, I, when you, when you say interrupted, it's like accusing, but you know, when, when you started talking, um, while I was trying to, while I was finishing, <laughs> I felt, um, I don't know, whatever you felt. And then you can ask her, would you be willing to let me finish what I'm saying in the future? Or like, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. And I bet she'd be, and if not, it's okay. It's, you're like trying something different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know I've been waiting for that time because I feel just so disempowered. Like 
Yeah. Like I let her run, run all over me. Yeah, well, maybe that it'd be really helpful to do something like that because you're deciding to do it. Like, you're not, it's not like she's the one deciding. It's like you're deciding you want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you're deciding you want to call her. Or you're, you know, you're deciding mm-hmm. those things. So it might help the dynamic. Oh, I hope you, I hope you find something that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really difficult. Um, let's go over... We'll go over these two, and then we'll take a break. Okay, so we're going through the lineage. Number one was one Buddha. Then two, there's an A and B. Two A, say Jetson Jampa. Jetson Jampa. Jetson Jampa. And that's Lord Maitreya, who's on the left. They look very similar, don't they? I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jampa means love, and that it wants to spread happiness. In the other definition in Tibetan, there's love that wants to spread happiness, and then there's also love that wants to take away, take away suffering. And what Lord Maitreya mostly taught was love or widespread behavior, spending your whole life thinking about and helping others. Caring only for others automatically makes us happy. That's what Lord Maitreya taught. And then say, Jampe Yang. Jampe Yang. That is Lord Manjushri on the right. I mean, I guess their poses are different. I know, I was thinking maybe that was a girl on the left. (laughs) Slightly. Yeah, it looks a little more ambiguous, maybe. Mm hmm. Yeah, the one on the right looks a little more masculine. Mm-hmm. Manjushri, or gentle voice. Mipam is his other name, meaning undefeatable. So sometimes you'll see that, Mipam. And we read some sutras, and sometimes they say Lord Maitreya is a Buddha, and sometimes they say that he's not a Buddha. We'll find his works in the Tengir, which is the commentaries, not by the Buddhas. And it's kind of confusing. Is he a Buddha or not? In the secret teachings, he's already a Buddha, and the same with Manjushri. But they're masquerading as bodhisattvas and asking questions to the Buddha, and they're pretending to be students. But in the ultimate teachings, they've been enlightened for a long time. Um, I don't know for sure, but I don't actually know. I always assumed after, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I've ever been taught that. Um, I mean, in the this timeline, they're after. 
So I think in this form they were after, but but it's kind of confusing because it, time is like beginningless and endless. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know. We can boil all of the Buddhist teachings down to two things. All we really need is the bodhisattva ideal, which is taking, thinking about other people our whole life, forgetting about ourselves and dedicating ourselves to other people, making sure they get exactly what they want, which would be really interesting practice, even if it was just for a day. I've never really done this for an entire day, if I look back and I'm really honest. Mm -hmm. I do it more and more, but I haven't done it for an entire day. I think you could, I think we could be doing that. Or we're um, just trying to notice or think about what people might want and then doing it for them. But I think also we could be thinking, okay, I'm going to take care of myself and have lunch so that I can be like my best self for the people in the future. That would be taking care of them too. So I guess maybe I, maybe I do it a little more than I think, but I've never done it a full day for sure, thinking about other people with everything. Yeah. Like what would be the most helpful for other people? And it might be doing something that I would have thought before was selfish, like going to bed early or something. But for me, if, if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to be grumpy in the morning, and that's not going to be helpful for the people at work because they're going to come interact with me and I'm going to be kind of grumpy and that doesn't feel good to anybody. Yeah. And it, it's totally unnatural for human beings to do this. If we had only five minutes to teach someone and we really wanted to impress on them on how cool this behavior is, the great branch is represented by Lord Maitreya, this part of it. It's this giving of our whole vast heart, very generous, widespread love. Gives away everything. And then the other 50%, we must have the other vision, which is of emptiness. We meet, or maybe we see people who are really generous and compassionate and giving, but then they lack the knowledge of emptiness. then what we should do is as we live for others, we understand emptiness at the same time, why we're doing it, what the seeds are going to be that, that we're planting. Every interaction is completely empty of any self-existence. There's karmic seeds that are ripening that are forcing us to see it in a certain way. Do we just get swept along and follow those, or do we plant a different seed in that moment? So we're thinking about that all the time. And then if we're doing that, the results are like gasoline and fire. They're explosive and totally extraordinary. Manjushri taught mainly wisdom or the vision of emptiness. 
second one, gentle voice. And Lord Maitreya taught mostly compassion. There, I think there's different, there's different spins on it. Um, but my my main understanding is, yeah, these were these were real people at a certain time, just like Lord Buddha was real, who went through the whole path and then reached Buddhahood at a certain point from walking this, the path. And then now they're sending emanations to come and teach. Just like we were talking about before with Jade Tsongkhapa, he would have the emanation of, I think it was Manjushri, who, who would come and teach him. And that's, that's partly how he wrote so many commentaries, because he was taking direct transmission from a holy being. like on the compassion side of things. Mm -hmm. I think you could say that. Yeah. None of these Buddhas were like a couple or anything. Not any of these ones in here that we're talking about, but from my understanding, all of them would have had partners, spiritual partners. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't know, you wouldn't see them, um, the spiritual partners, except in the secret teachings. That's my understanding of it. I haven't really mm-hmm. totally studied it yet, so I kind of feel like I can say it because I don't, I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that's how, that's how I've understood it. And I think Esha Michaels talked about that too. He definitely talked about spiritual partners. And, you know, like he came out in the open with Mama Christie, too, which wasn't the norm or really acceptable in the Buddhist world, too. Mm-hmm. So. But is that like marriage? Were they married? Or it's more. I kind of think. I think they did get married, but. More just from what I remember, it was for a different reason. Like, I think they were already committed and in a spiritual partnership, but I can't remember. I thought there was some specific reason that they got married other than that. But I don't, I don't know for sure. I wasn't, I don't know if that, all those details. I just know I'm really, like, secondhand from people who talk, who've talked about it. That doesn't break. like his monk's vows Mm -hmm. I don't know all the monk's vows because you only learn all of them when you get um, ordained I would imagine it would break one of them but he also has we talked about this a few classes back he also has the monk's vows are first then there's the bodhisattva vows, 
and then there's a tantric vows too. Mm-hmm. And so you you do you go like with the higher vow if you if there's like a situation where you're forced to choose. Mm-hmm. So that's how I could imagine maybe there's a different vow that he had that he felt like was really like he knew was really important to keep and so he broke the lower one to keep that one mm-hmm. I guess that's another I mean I'm like crying and I feel like I'm crying <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not feel like that too when I ask about that sort of thing but in some way I mean we it's good to check like our motivation because sometimes I just like kind of like gossip Uh but also sometimes it's just confusing and maybe someone else will be confused and ask you and then you'll know the answer because you asked you know so I don't know lots of people have those have those questions Venerable Tenzin? Yeah. Uh-huh. And he seems so dedicated. Yeah. She's not going to go... It, she wouldn't seem like she would go get a partner or be a lap like she... And then you see the men. Like, that's just what I see. You know, the men have to... Well, the, I mean, only the ones I really... But not... Um, Uh-huh. From what I know, it's a part of Tantra practice, and it's not that doing that is bad, but I think that you're not supposed to go public with it, which was the problem that a lot of people had with it, um, because for the reason that it, it damages people's perception and their an idea of Buddhism and you know it causes difficulty for people but the practice itself isn't I don't think it's a problem it's just that if you go public with it I think you're supposed to be able to like you have to publicly like perform these miracles or something to prove that you have the um, spiritual like achievements to be able to go public with it. I don't quite understand it, but that's that's what I know about it. So it's not that I don't totally know about the marriage part, but the partnership part is definitely part of practice. It's just that you're not supposed to talk about it. Or well, that's not totally accurate, but you know, in general and openly and come out and show people and that sort of thing. So, I mean, if if they're, if all of these teachers are tantric teachers and they're at that point, then they would all have the same thing. It just wouldn't be something that they would talk about. And it's not the, it's not the same, it's not, 
I really, I haven't learned that much about it, but it's not the same relationship as like the one that I have now or that I've had in the past. It's a very different kind of relationship. And I don't know all that that entails, but, but it's not like just starting to date someone and then, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's really different from my understanding. Yeah. So, okay, let's take a break. Okay. So we just went over Lord Maitreya and Lord Marjushri. And now we're on to Master Sangha, who was 350 AD. And Master Nagarjuna, who's 280. Master Nagarjuna is kind of hard to see. Mm -hmm. So these are all the teachers that were studying all the time. And Master Sangha, he taught mainly bodhisattva behavior as dictated by Lord Maitreya, who we just were talking about. So that's how it comes down. Master Asanga transmitted the teachings to Lord Atisha through Saralingpa. And then Master Nagarjuna taught mainly the view of emptiness as dictated by Manjushri. So they're connected to Lord Maitreya and Lord Manjushri. Then he transmitted the teachings to Lord Atisha, because see, he was before. Oh, no, that's not, that's not valid right here. He transmitted the teachings to Lord Atisha through Vidya Kokila. So they're all totally intertwined and connected, all these great masters and all the teachings that we get. And there's this Tibetan word Xing Te Solje, which means wooden horse inventor. The inventor of the horse-drawn carriage, which is a simple but elegant device of ancient India. It's used as a metaphor in the Prajnaparamita for the two great commentators of Buddha's sutras, Lord Maitreya slash Master Sangha and Lord Manjushri slash Master Nagarjuna. On the emptiness side, it's Master Nagarjuna. Then Master Asanga taught mostly bodhicitta. And these two are the two, the two precious jewels. So Nagarjuna, emptiness. Master Asanga, bodhicitta. And we really, we can't understand what they wrote either directly. And then after them, there's early Indian teachings, which we can't really understand. And then there's the Kadampa tradition, and we can't understand that. And then we get to the great Kagyu traditions, and we can't understand that either. And then we go up and up and up, and we can finally understand the commentaries that were written in the 17 and 1800s, which opens up the Kagyu tradition, which opens up the Kadampa, and then back and back and back throughout all the sutras. Mm -hmm. 
So back and back and back, which is how we can understand the sutras or the teachings of Lord Buddha. It's like doors opening back. Then we get to Lord Atisha. He was alive 982 to 1052. He wrote The Lamp on the Path, which was the first Slam Rim book. And it systemically combines the lineages of the teachings on bodhisattva activity with wisdom. And what he did was he found a great master who taught him the wisdom lineage, and he mastered that. But he couldn't find anyone to teach the bodhisattva behavior, the bodhisattva way of life. And finally, he found Master Serlingpa. He got in a boat. He sailed 12 months to Sumatra. And he didn't go to see Master Serlingpa right away. Instead, he checked him out for a long time. And then he decided that he was a master, and he went and studied with him. He wrote the first, he's the first one to combine the wisdom and bodhisattva teachings. And this is the first Lamrim as we know it from Lord Atisha. And then we come to the subsequent Lamas from Lord Atisha up to the present day. Here you see um, Trijang Rinpoche, Pabanko Rinpoche, who were both teachers of Ken Rinpoche, who was Geshe Michael's teacher. And then Geshe Michael taught Lama Ami, who then taught us. passed away from this life in 2001. Yeah. And so from from Trijang Rinpoche and Pabanka Rinpoche, then we can go back to Jason Kappa, and then it's easy to get back to Lord Atisha from there. So we can trace all the teachings through this clear, unbroken lineage. So we know that we're getting pure, accurate teachings. And we have to get in that mood of this being an unbroken lineage that is being poured into the student from the master, down and down and down the line, up to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, up to Ken Rinpoche. Now can that get messed It could get messed up with us <coughs> because it's been poured into us, so we have to carry it on. Because each person would have their, what is it? Um, perception of what's. Yeah, but. Most. 
But if they're being who, you know, like what we know of all these beings and what I know of Geshe Michael who reads Tibetan, who reads Sanskrit, he's read everything directly and then he talks about all the time, which is what we have to do too, is not, you can't change anything. You have to just teach it exactly as it is. You can say, this is my opinion. It's, I don't know that it's in Buddhism. You know, like you can put your opinion in, but you have to be very clear when you're doing that so that nothing gets muddied because that's the clear, you know, strong lineage that actually works. And if we start changing it, then we're just going to mess it up, really. So that, I mean, that's how we can, this is the best way that we can know is by tracing it back to Lord Buddha. And then for those scholars who can go back and study older commentaries like Geshe Michael, he can make sure that everything stayed pure and clean too. So I can't do that. I just am relying on Lama Ami, who's teaching from Geshe Michael, you know, who's teaching back and back and back. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's also kind of scary to think because these are two very precious knowledges the bodhisattva way of life, the wisdom side of things that are being passed on from being to being and they're really fragile because, I mean, especially tonight, how many of us are in this room to pass it down? You know what I mean? Even on like a really busy, like the busiest night we could have, maybe 50 people can fit in this room out of how many billions on the planet? <laughs> So it's really not that much. The thread of the teachings is really in great danger, especially after all of the destruction in Tibet. And it can look like, you know, on our Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights that we're having a really nice class, which we are, but we're also the next link. And if we lose it at this point, it could easily be lost forever in a few generations, which would be really sad. And then there also looks like there's a lot of monks at Saramay. There's maybe a thousand. But the world has, I don't even know how many billion people. And we're looking at this very small percentage compared to that. And the scriptures say, people, you know, people will either look back and say, oh, those Americans, they messed it up again. Or they'll say, wow, they did an amazing thing. And they carried on this tradition. Because the prophecies and the sutras say that Buddhism will continue for another 2,500 years by Western people. So we're the ones who will continue it. We're a conduit to pass along the teachings to others perfectly, purely, and clearly. And I've heard um, even Geshe Sultram and other teachers, um, I've heard say that like, we're the serious students. So we have the um, responsibility to, to pass them on. The story in the sutras is that we do succeed. And that doesn't mean that we don't have to try. But through the Western people, it will be passed down. 
And this is the time that it's being transmitted. So we can appreciate the lineage and think that it's a historic moment or a historic time. These two great currents of wisdom are passing down to us, and then we have to take care to hand it down nicely in whatever way we're going to. And understand it well. The Saramay Monastery Library, with all of these great texts, were completely destroyed by the Chinese. And it took about 30 years for them to rebuild it. So we're really lucky to have these texts and these commentaries that we're studying. Because they, you know, the Chinese had attempted to wipe them off of the planet, really. That the Chinese invaded? I don't know if I remember. Was it just that they wanted the land? They wanted like more territory? Yeah. Or was it the rest? You know how they were people trying to destroy the castle? Mm. I wonder if it was. Because isn't it. I've seen movies on this too. I can believe. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I feel like I should know. <laughs> I mean, they, seemed, they seem really intent on destroying their whole culture. I don't know why. Why would they want it to? Because aren't they now, like, in China? China? Isn't it? I think so, but I don't. I think it is a big religion there. I don't know how it how it's big. If it's like, mm -hmm. if, you know, because there's all these stories about how they're like, there's all this propaganda and they're just like creating this facade that looks like one thing, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. And they're like set up fake monks and there's just all these crazy stories. So, yeah, yeah. I know, it's not talked about very much, though, like, why? Like, people don't really mention that that much. Yeah. It's just that they invaded. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't pay enough attention. Well, history was not my thing. I know. In school. Well, I don't even think we went over that in school. But I know it wasn't that either. <laughs> Okay, um, so say Ningpo Dordu Selwa. Ningpo Dordu Selwa. And that's essence, brief, and illumination. Which is illumination of the essence by Choni Lama Drakpa Shedra. 1675 to 1748. Isn't this the cutest picture? Doesn't it just look so sweet? <laughs> yes. Is he holding another person? I don't think so. 
know why he's looking down. I guess there there weren't photos from this time in history. I don't know when like photographs came along, but what this does, it emphasizes the importance of the unbroken lineage of bodhisattva behavior and wisdom. The illumination of the essence. And like we mentioned before, the lineage is a fragile thing which can only be transferred down from teacher to student and not through books alone. If you study only a brief summary of the Lamrim, you've basically covered all 3,500 works of the Kongir and the Tengir. Okay, this is the last slide. Okay, so now we're going to go over the four special qualities. Oh no, I wiped off my nose. <laughs> okay. The four special qualities of the Lamrim teaching. The most obvious is if the Lamrim covers all Buddhist teachings, then you've covered the essence of everything you can learn in five to six years. And you can get the virtue of going through the whole Kongir and the whole Tengir. And these are the four special qualities. These are all just really, really lovely. I mean, to have any one of these. Number one, you realize all the teachings are free of any inconsistency. You realize that some incredible genius has set up this huge system where everything fits together perfectly. All the teachings that you've had are a conspiracy. These seemingly unrelated teachings all gel and are connected. There's not a single teaching that we've ever had in 15 years or however long it's been that doesn't fit in with every other teaching, which is totally awesome. Although the different Buddhist schools do present disparate views from one another based on the capacity of the students, all the schools are perfectly interlocking in this puzzle designed to help people reach enlightenment. And basically, it was Jason Kappa, and we really gained this deep appreciation. And this doesn't mean that the lower schools don't say things that the higher schools don't accept, because that is the case. But the Buddha taught these things to get us along a little further. And when, we, when you start to teach, then you'll see. So the same, and you'll see teachers do this too. They'll give answers that you know maybe aren't the highest view because it, it seems like it's something that would be helpful to someone at that time. And I used to, really, I think I used to try to correct Lamami all the time, which is <laughs> totally embarrassing now. Because <laughs> I was like, because I was like clinging to this one idea that it's only that way, and I was like, no, you said before it was this. Yeah, I've that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That one takes a while to learn because then we realize, yes, it is that, 
And it's also the other, too. Like, that might be the highest view, but it doesn't mean the other one's not true. And that's why they were all taught, because the teacher's, like, pulling out, or what's coming out is whatever is going to be helpful for the student. And so if I asked the question, it would be totally different than someone else, too. It could be. And that, I think that took me a long time to really see. <laughs> I would do that just with people thinking, well, you said this, like, a month ago or whatever, and try to prove it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like in Buddhism? Um, no, just them telling me something. No. That type of thing. I know, because it is. It's true in everyday life, too. There, And I kind of struggled with this for a while, because with trying to follow the no-line mm-hmm. um, vow, I felt like I wasn't being completely truthful at the time, because... I was saying something that was true, but I also thought something else was true. So it kind of got like really muddied. And I think now I have a, a little better understanding of it. And like if I say something or I say I'm gonna do something and then something comes up or, or plans change down the road, even if it was a little thing, then I'm like, it's okay, things change. Where before I would feel like, oh my God, I lied. And yeah. and I don't think that's totally the, the intention of it. Because things change all the time. It's not like I actively told them something that I knew wasn't true. At the time I did, I thought it was true. Because yeah. Yeah. then it's like you can paint yourself into a corner where you can't ever change your mind on anything. Yeah. Being honest with yourself that you can do that and that that's the right thing to do. That and she's like, yeah, I know. Like sometimes I'll um, make a commitment with someone and they ask me to go to like a movie that I don't really like, and then I, for whatever reason, said yes, and then I'm, you know, beating myself up, thinking, oh my gosh, like, why did I do that? And then this other person comes up, do you want to go to this concert or whatever? And she's like, I think we just follow the path. Because for whatever reason, we said yes to this thing that maybe there's a deeper reason to go to the movies. Yeah. Then there's to go to this concert, but we really think we really want to get out of this thing to go to that concert, and we're destroying the uh, path. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that could totally be true in those situations for sure, and potentially we're like destroying the relationship with the person mm-hmm. that we're now deciding that we want to ditch to go to something better. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I think there's like, if we think the movie's going to be harmful to us, then we could say, you know, I know I said yes to this movie, but it's, it's really not my thing. Would you mind if we did something different? Or, you know, like, yeah, yeah. doesn't mean we have to like totally ditch out on them. But I, yeah, I kind of, I do that a lot, I think, where my word, I, you know, like, my word's important, but I don't know, at a certain point, it's like, it's okay to change my mind, too. Not just, yeah. not just because I'm like, uh, I don't feel like going with that person. But, you know, like, like, when the time comes to do the thing. Yeah. But then I also feel like on the other side, I'm like, oh, God, I've been that person. So I was like, oh, yeah. I just, but then I also do want to get out of it. So I'm like making these phantom pains up or something. I know. And then it can like, be tricky. And then I've known people and I've really seen it where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't even want to try anymore with this person because they just keep wanting to do what they want to do and yeah and then you're not important and then and then I'm like like they're totally inflexible it just creates that so part of me is like commitment just sticking to it yeah, there's so many different factors, too, because yeah. depends what our practice is right then. If that's, like, an important thing we're working on, then maybe we stick to it all the time, no matter what, just for a while. Or... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's true, because it does change the priorities. Yeah. And what you're practicing. And it's okay for it to change, too. I mean, like... It's not like you're changing it on a whim just because you feel like it or something, but at a certain point, it'll naturally shift. And so it's not... I don't think it's healthy to feel like we have to keep it the same way either. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about ultimately, okay, this is what I want to see. You know, like when you think about, okay, this is what I want to see in other people. This is really important to me. So I'm going to practice these things. And then you just go for that for like however long. And then you, it might start to change. Yeah, I think so. Like there's, because we could be cleaning out some karma. And then we'll get to a point where, like, we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm done with that for now, and I'm going to work on something else. And then maybe we still continue with the same behavior, but maybe not, too. Maybe we kind of, like, loosen up on it and just relax a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But there is the bodhisattva vow of... Um, Failing to accept an invitation out of, I think it's anger or laziness. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 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 oh my 
and I mean, like, we think of laziness as, I mean, I need to rest. Like, that's being lazy, but I don't think that's really being, that's not really what it is. It's, I think of laziness in this as more like, I don't really feel like it. You know, like, <laughs> that's rude. <laughs> A mix between that and, like, yeah, I don't want, it's not the terms I want. Yeah. And then a mix between the two. What was it? Laziness and, and anger. Maybe resentment or something. Like there might be some resentment. Yeah, or I can see for me too, there could be anger that they even asked me because now I have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which is the opposite of being a bodhisattva, you know, like, I'm not thinking about trying to serve and help all beings, you know, including myself, because by getting angry, then I'm planting these seeds for anger again. Yeah. 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 As we were saying before, the, so the Buddha taught all these different views to get us further along. And we really can't just lay the Diamond Cutter Sutra on someone who's fresh to class, to Buddhism, because it'll totally frustrate them, they won't get it. We have to start with interdependence. And there's, there's no subject that we've studied in all these courses, we're in the ninth course, that isn't in the Lamrim. It all has a place in that ladder. <coughs> oh, we're on it already. <laughs> so the first one is you realize all the teachings are free of any inconsistency. Second, every single teaching strikes you as personal advice. And I think this happens sometimes for probably everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but every single teaching, it would be amazing Every single thing that any teacher said, it would feel like personal advice to us. Oh, they're telling, oh my gosh, this is for me. Oh, they're telling me this. It would be so interesting to listen to every teaching. I mean, they are interesting already, but if all of them were like striking me as personal advice, it would completely transform every class. Yeah. It would be totally amazing. All the time? No. It happens sometimes. Yeah. And I think it can be different. Like, it can be something that you were wondering about, and then the next time you're in class, the teacher answers that exact question. Mm -hmm. Or, or, you know, they can talk about something you didn't even know that you were supposed to be working on, and then you're like, oh, this is totally referring to that. But the power of this one sounds to me like it's like the Buddha is talking directly to me and telling me exactly like how to live my life that's how all of them would strike and that's I don't feel like that often sometimes and it depends on the teacher too Mm -hmm. for me
Oh, yeah. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. I think all of us have or we wouldn't be attracted to these teachings. Because I had come to the Davis ones, but then I wasn't feeling that way mm -hmm. until the magic that happened when I went to see Wilma Murray. And oh. I had no idea who he was or anything. It was just magic. Yeah. I couldn't even believe the things that happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that was when he was at Diamond Mountain, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mom with Christy. Yeah. I wasn't liking Michael, Geshe Michael. You weren't like as attracted to his teaching as it was mainly Lama Maru. Yeah. And then I listened to one teaching but I could barely sit up there Lama Christy she was very good yeah I think so too but then I couldn't go to all her teachings because I was so frustrated by that time with, I, with what just whatever was happening like Lama Maru got through all his teaching and then um and then they did Geshe Michael and then Lama Christy separately, but in mm. the same tent. But then we were sitting really uncomfortable chairs. And then we were sitting there waiting for the retreat people to come and be quiet. And, and there was just times when I was like, oh, I gotta leave. I had to leave one while everyone was up there because it was Michael, he was talking about looking at the mind, mm -hmm. and we were doing a meditation, and I was like, damn, like, why, <laughs> why, <laughs> I was so upset, because it was just like, you weren't, like, you weren't comfortable, and, like, <laughs> feeling all these different things that were, like, obstacles, and, and then I was like, I just was so resistant to what he was saying, maybe. It was just... Yeah. And the way I've totally was, felt that way. It's like the way he was conveying it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like you were, like, uncomfortable and... Yeah. Yeah. I actually felt like that at first when I met Lama Root. I felt I was like sick. I was really annoyed. I didn't think he was funny. Yeah. Everyone was laughing at everything he was saying. I was like, who are these people? <laughs> and then, but what he was saying really struck me. And then I, I started meditating, I think at least five days a week. And then I kept listening to all his teachings. And like, I really stuck with it. And as I got to know him and maybe whatever obscurations cleared then I then I totally loved him but yeah it was like that for me with him at first too yeah 
So let's see, how much do we have left? So, ooh, every teaching hits us as personal advice. We only have three minutes, so um, there's not that much in here, though. And it's a, there's a, it's a sign that our relationship with our llama is going really well. If we're exactly what we need, it comes to us in the next class. So we can kind of watch out for that. Exactly what we need, it comes to us in the next class. It's taught in that next class. Oh, um, oh, it's a sign that our relationship with our llama is going really well. Okay. If that happens. Like we walk into class and they're teaching exactly what we need. Exactly what we need help with. And the third is we easily grasp the intent of the Buddhas. We come, we'll come to understand why the Buddha taught every specific point and why they're all a necessary part. So we'll have this huge, broad overview. And fourth, it'll save us from the great abyss. We'll avoid the great mistake of outrightly rejecting one of the teachings. And this doesn't mean that we blindly accept the teachings, which we, we don't really believe right now, but rather that we set them aside for a later point and just say, I'm going to come back to this one later. If it doesn't make sense to me right now, I'll put it aside for now. So it's not no big deal. And like I mentioned before, we can begin to think of all of the teachings, all the steps on the path, as like this big ball of light that has all these pinpoints of light. And every light has its place, and we can think of every teaching like that. So it's like part of this big ball of light. And this, can, this prevents us from making the mistake of rejecting something because we can't see the connection yet which can block us from being able to learn it in the future. And it makes sense to it. It makes it like it's not such a huge deal. It's just, I don't know what, what to think about this right now, so I'm going to stick with these other things I'm learning, and I'll come back to it later. So it's not like, it just makes it like not a huge deal, too. Like, it's okay. It's not speaking to me now. I'll come back to it at another time and see what's going on. Have you still rejected, the, or I mean, things came up and you're like, uh, but then later you're... Uh, what was it, what was like that for me? Um, Your mind just automatically goes to a negative place. I think it took me a while to under, really understand, well, to, you know, at least to the point that I do now, past and future lives, because that's not like a part of my culture upbringing. <coughs> so that one took a little bit of time. There's definitely been things I've struggled with. I don't know if there's anything that I've been like, no way. Most of it seems 
Like, it's all true. <laughs> Straight up, like, rejecting it in the way where it's like, I don't believe this. Or is it more, or can it also be like, oh, I just want to escape this teaching because, like, you're not connecting with the teacher. I don't know. Uh, it might, it could be, I think, but not necessarily. Like, if you're, if you're, like, dissing the, the teaching, then I'd say, yeah, that might be. But if it's just, like, I'm, I'm having a tough time connecting with this teacher right now, um, I think it's always good to make it a little less final, like, right now, I'm not connecting with them. Or it seems like, you know, there's a difficulties coming up for me in relation to this teacher, and mm-hmm. I'm going to go and, you know, like, do study with someone else, or, or whatever it is, as long as it's not someone we've totally committed to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think that's necessarily it. But then if you commit to them, and then you are like, oh no, and then you start to, like, look at them, and Yeah, I think that's why we're supposed to check them out for a long time. Because even if we do leave someone, it should be like we still have this great appreciation and love for them. But it just seems like they're going in a path that we're not comfortable with or something like that. Like not not ever saying like they're a bad person or something like that because we've made this big connection with them or this big bond, you know? So not ever dissing, dissing them like that. Yeah, because I wonder that about, you know, the people that sponsor me that have. And I think it's been like that where it's mostly gratitude. You know, it didn't work out. Yeah, I think that seems like it's fine. Now there's resentment in some of them. Well, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll just do just two pairs. But it sounds like yeah, it sounds like you're just moving on, and that's okay. Sashi Puki Chukshing Metok Chang Rirabhan Shin Yante Gampadi Sange Shingu Mikte Wagi Chokun Amdak Shingla Chuparsho Yidam Guru Radma Mandalakan Niryatayami Gewadi Gewokun Tsunami a shade sok sok she Tsunami a shade lejun way Tampa 